Welcome to Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy practitioner. I'm your host, Holly Wayment. I work for UT Health San Antonio's Department of Pediatrics. In this podcast, we explore how we can provide the best, most cutting-edge, compassionate care for children. We hope to give you a unique and behind-the-scenes edge from our expert guests. After listening, click on the link on this podcast for free credit. Joining me here today on Pediatrics Now is Dr. Anton Fries. He's an associate professor of plastic surgery at the UT Health Science Center. He also serves as the division chief of plastic and reconstructive surgery. He received his medical degree from the University of Cambridge and served for 20 years as medical director in the Royal Navy. He retired at the rank of surgeon and commander, having deployed across the globe, including two combat tours in Afghanistan. Dr. Fries, thank you so much for being here today on Pediatrics Now. Thanks for having me. May I call you Anton? Please do, yeah. So Anton, you just returned from a trip to the Philippines where you were doing some really important work. That's right, yeah. It was my uh, seventh uh, trip to Manila to with a charity called Operation Restore Hope where we perform cleft lip and palate surgeries for underprivileged children, mostly from Manila, but actually... Um, from areas around the Philippines that they get uh, brought to uh, to our surgical center, which is which is really fantastic. I mean, cleft lip and palate is a is a fascinating and challenging surgical problem, and, and really, in some ways, it's the essence of plastic surgery and certainly pediatric plastic surgery. It's a it's a functional problem. Obviously, it's also a cosmetic aesthetic problem, and in treating it, each one, while you might lump them together as one diagnosis, each one is completely unique. So for the surgeon, it really challenges your technique and your artistry as well as your um, skills to to treat these patients. So it's a fascinating problem and a really rewarding area to work in. From the perspective of the Philippines in particular, um, no one really knows the the true cause of cleft cleft lips and palates. There's definitely a genetic component because they're more common in certain um, genetic groups than others, but there's also a, a component that's environmental, so poverty um, plays a role as well. So taking all that into account, cleft lips and palates are twice as common um, in, in areas of Southeast Asia as they are in, um, in the United States, for example. Do we know why poverty plays a role? It, it, it's, it, again, it's multifactorial, and there'll be a Nobel Prize awarded to the person who can figure this all out. But we know, for example, that you know, um, maternal malnutrition is related, and of course that would go with poverty. We know that maternal smoking is related, but clearly there are plenty of pa- people who, has, who are uh, subject to those environmental factors who don't uh, develop a cleft lip or palate, so obviously there's a genetic susceptibility underneath that those factors play upon. Anton, it must be so rewarding to do this work, but also challenging at the same time. A- absolutely, and there, there's a real um, balance to be struck and, um, and also an, uh, an ethical uh, issue when it comes to global health and how we provide these sorts of services. And, you know, the, the days of going somewhere, doing surgery and coming home and patting yourself on the back are over. You know, we really have to be integrated with the community, work with uh, local physicians, train local physicians, provide follow-up and continuity of care to all of our patients. And that's something that we're really proud of in our charity, uh, we work with local doctors consistently. They're even able to provide follow-up to our patients in between the missions that we're there. We have a lot of local sponsors who work very closely with us, and they support the patients um, in, in, our, in our absence. 
and we're, we're very proud of that role we have in the community and, and that's borne out on, on, during this COVID disaster we weren't able to go for three years during that time we supported the hospitals that we used to work at by providing them with PPE for example from our charitable donations hmm. and I guess the proof of the pudding is that I, I saw a lot of patients who I'd operated on in 2019 and even 2018 who came back to see us for their follow-ups some of them were just to see us and, and some were patients who for example we'd repaired their lip and now they need a palate repair or something like that so you know we really think we've got that relationship with the community we've already set up our mission for next year and uh, we're involved as I say with the local groups out there. For our pediatric practitioner listeners is there a way they could get involved if they're interested Absolutely, uh, you know, like, like like all charities, we, we rely on on donations, and we re and we rely on um, you know a certain amount of, of publicity. And uh, Operation Restore Hope Australia is the uh, is the sort of link on uh, on all forms of social media. Okay, great. And do you need pediatricians there? Yeah, so we we really are trying to broaden our scope. And um, for example, dentistry, uh, we've we've just started taking a dentist with us. And, uh, you know, and now we're expanding his role in the mission to have actually do some restorative dentistry because it's clearly a lot of the patients we see have uh, very poor dentition for obvious reasons. Uh, that's, that's not so concerning for the little babies who are having their lips done, but some of the older children are having their palates done. Clearly we don't want to perform a palate repair where there are infected teeth in the mouth. Um, and unfortunately at the moment we're, you know, those teeth can either be only really be removed and that's fine if they're baby teeth. But, you know, some, some of the older patients we see who need revisions and things done, you know, if they could have some restorative dentistry, that would be fantastic. So that's kind of the next phase. In terms of general paediatrics, as you can imagine, all kinds of patients come to our clinic. Um, we do some pre-screening that some of our local guys do. But clearly we see a lot of malnourished patients and patients with other conditions that can be helped, absolutely. What inspired you to do this? Yeah, well, you know, like, like all these things that, you know, there's sort of serendipity uh, involved. And, 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 you know, my best friend from medical school uh, in England, you know, was working in Australia. Um, one of the guys he worked for turned out to be the founder of the charity. And, and we actually met on New Year's Day on, on the beach in Sydney. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he was, uh, the phrase he used was he was looking for people who were comfortable in uncomfortable places. And, uh, you know, at the time I was very much still in the military and, uh, you know, a young surgeon and, um, and he, he thought I might fit the bill. And, uh, yeah, and I went and, and once you do it once, you're, you're, you know, you're hooked because, you know, really uh, I've just got back and, I, and I'm, you know, my love of surgery is reaffirmed. You know, my love of what we do is reaffirmed just just from, the, you know, those weeks of, uh, of really, you know, giving um, for its own sake and, and doing the procedures for their own sake and, the, and just for the patients. And so uh, you come back with a new perspective and, and I'm more excited about my day job for being there. I mean, I think one of the, uh, actually it was the very first operation I did on the mission, this mission back and the first one I'd done in Manila since COVID. So it was very emotional to be back to be with this, my old team, you know, we, we know that we, we, we're good friends with the Filipino staff in that hospital we work with. And by complete coincidence, the first patient I operated on was actually a much older girl. Um, she was already 11, and she'd lived with a cleft lip, obviously, all her life. And um, she actually wasn't from Manila. And one of our, uh, our main sponsors, who lives in Manila, he, he was in contact with the mayor of an island called Bohol, which is a, uh, you know, one of the, one of the 
many islands in the Philippines, and and um, you know he he'd been advertising this this mission, and the mayor said, well, we we have I see these kids with these cleft lips. There's no one here that re- that repairs them. The, the the hospital doesn't have that capability. Uh, if I can get them to Manila, can you guys operate on them? And um, of course we said yes. And um, you know, unbeknownst to me, you know, I was sort of going through the, the technical side of it, but you know, th- this girl had never left Bohol, she'd never been on an aircraft, um, her and her family were as nervous about the plane flight as they were about the surgery, and um, and lo and behold, you know, uh, she was treated and, and, you know, she was beautiful with mm. a cleft lip, and, and, and once it was repaired, it, it was amazing, so it was just an incredible way to start the trip. That's wonderful. And what's the quote, we can't do something for someone else without helping ourselves, that must be be such a great feeling as a clinician to be able to do that for someone. Absolutely. And I think from a physician's perspective, you know, whatever these missions in global health, we all, we're, you know, you, you listed some of my, you know, administrative roles at the beginning of this podcast. And, you know, as you can imagine, as I say to the residents, you know, with, with great responsibility comes great email. And, <laughs> you know, and sometimes you, you can, you know, you, in these in institutions we can lose the wood for the trees, uh, you know, as we mm-hmm. attend to all these other issues that we get faced with every day. And so just to go as a group of doctors and nurses, um, you know, and a group of patients and, and, and just do very simple, uh, you know, each day as many cases as you can uh, is, is really refreshing. Yeah. So let's talk about your day job. Tell me about that, what that looks like. Well, my, my day job, like, like most surgeons, is uh, divided between spending time in the operating room and spending time in my clinic and trying to avoid doing administrative tasks as much as possible. And li- like all surgeons, you know, the, we, we take a lot of joy in the, in the technical, technicality of our surgery and, and being in the OR. I think a lot of people complain about being in clinic, but personally, I actually really enjoy it. I, I love seeing patients um, prior to their surgery and being able to have a discussion and getting to know them and hopefully offering the solution to their, their whatever problem it is. And in reconstructive surgery in, in particular, everything's very individualized. And I, and I think that's one of the real joys of, it, of doing reconstructive surgery because patients with the same problem can have more than one solution, which can be really, really fun un- learning to understand what, each person aspires to and then of course seeing your follow-ups is really the I think one of the great thrills that you've helped somebody with your own hands uh, to overcome some problem and um, and, that, and that's that's really, really exciting and you cared for some of the victims from the Uvalde shooting that's correct yes that must have been difficult that was hugely challenging and it was a um, very emotionally difficult time and uh, that it was important we got a lot of support from our leadership um, not just within plastic surgery but within the trauma surgery group as well um, the, the hospital um, the injuries were similar to the I treat in Afghanistan mm. uh, on, a, on a, for obvious reasons and um, you know that the technicalities were the same but to be in a civilian setting uh, the uh, emotional impact was harder, in my in my, in my opinion. Um, but uh, at the same time, I was very proud of what my my colleagues, my partners, who also operate on those patients, were able to achieve. Um, so yeah, and it yeah. It's hard to talk about even today. 
It is, it is, and you know, uh, you know, ballistics, hype injuries, and in, I know this is a pediatric po- podcast, and you know, since I've been here, and I, 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 well, I've treated pediatric patients who've been victims of war, um, you, you know, in Afghanistan, in particular, burns um, children, and uh, and now also, you know, the, these types of injuries from these sorts of events that that, that periodically occur, yeah. Even today at University Hospital, there was a Schwartz rounds where they come in and they talk to the doctors. You talk about dealing with the emotional effects and ha- how we can avoid compassion fatigue and stay with compassion. Tell me how important is compassion in your work? When you see a patient, are you thinking about connect that connection? And tell me about that. That's, that's a fascinating question, and I've, I've thought about that quite a lot because there are some surgeons who say that uh, you, you mustn't have compassion, that, that to have compassion clouds your, your judgment or it clouds your technical ability because if you're too busy being compassionate, you're not thinking about what you're actually doing with your hands and the right thing to do. Personally, I think that's not really true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, e- equally... I also believe that, you know, if we define compassion as to really, really be in someone else's shoes, sometimes that's just impossible. Uh, you know, I, I can imagine certain things, and of course I've had suffered from ill health and my family members have suffered from ill health, and, and so, uh, you know, I know to, we all know to an extent what it is to go through that, but certain things that we deal with, you know, may be so extreme or, or so unusual that, you know, how could we possibly truly be compassionate? So I think it's, I think it's a fascinating area think it's it's probably enough to be mindful that that's the situation that you're in when patients often ask and I think they ask all their doctors you know what would you do if it was your mother or pediatrics what would you do if it was your child and and I think people think that's a very reasonable thing to ask and probably it is but I always think to myself that you know we have only known each other for the 20 minutes of the consultation or maybe an hour or maybe longer it's very hard to understand someone's lived experience and what have they been through for the previous years, months, what are their truly their hope, their hopes and dreams for the future. So I think it's very hard to simply say, oh, well, if it was my child, I'd do X um, because it's just, it, 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 you know, truly, true compassion, I think, is probably impossible. Um, I'd completely disagree that no compassion is possible. And I think that's really interesting. So... Listening is crucial. Is that something that you, you think about when you're in that exam room? Absolutely. I think you have to really reach a point in a consultation where you, you feel that you've kind of met in the middle of the level of understanding. And sometimes that can be quite difficult. And, and one of my mentors said you, you should never never finish the consultation until the, let, always let the patient finish it mm. and I think that's not a bad idea and it, it sort of once they're once they once they verbalize that they're happy that, that they've been through everything it's probably a good cue that maybe you have achieved a, a level of understanding I think it's very relevant to plastic surgery reconstructive surgery um, as I alluded to you know, there are so many different ways of dealing with the problems that we face, which wounds, inj- injuries, uh, 
aesthetic cosmetic concerns in children, you know, congenital de deficiencies. Um, you know, for example, we treat congenital hand um, conditions for children. Now, some patients, particularly children, learn to adapt with what look very stark differences in their hands appearance, but actually they can write, they can function incredibly dexterously because of the way that they're able to adapt. And so while it might be very tempting to perform an operation to change the appearance of their hand, you may not achieve uh, any improvement in their function. You could even make it worse by doing surgery. So, you know, you really have to try and understand what their perspective is and, and what they're after. And stay in curiosity. Is that kind of a point you're yeah, making? I think that's a great, a great way of putting it. I think, and again, without being disrespectful to other so, so, you know, other, other areas of surgery, but you know, clearly if, if someone comes to the hospital with appendicitis, then you're going to take their appendix out. But oftentimes, if someone comes with a reconstructive issue, you, the answer may be to do nothing. It may be to do something simple, like a, maybe even a skin graft or something, or it could be something incredibly complex, like a transplantation of one part of their body to somewhere else. And you have to understand between you and the patient what the correct thing for them is to do. Anton, what would you like pediatric practitioners to know regarding your field of work and to look out for when they're seeing 30 or more patients a day? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, I think with plastic surgery, you know, we, we're, we're about treating function. We're about treating form. There's a huge amount that we, we can do for patients, whether it's congenital whether it's trauma-related. And I think you, your comment about curiosity, you know, really uh, there's, there is, there's quite a lot that can be achieved. So if, if, a, if a practitioner is faced with a patient, particularly with its, you know, craniofacial issue or hand surgical issue, then oftentimes, you know, we, we can really offer something for them. And with this new um, hospital, the Women and Children's Hospital, how is that going to help and change things? We're super excited about the new hospital. Um, you know, San Antonio is a city that's the fastest growing city in the United States, apparently. And so, of course, you know, we need this capacity for, the, for our community. And it's going to increase, I hope and expect, the workload of, of pediatric plastic surgery. So we're really excited to engage with that, with the faculty that we have, and also some new faculty, I hope. So you'll be doing surgeries there at that new university hospital? Absolutely, treating patients there, yeah, yeah. And where, tell us now where you see patients and do your surgeries. So at the moment, well, we have, so we have our pediatric ORs, our dedicated pediatric ORs at University Hospital. Um, we see our patients, we see a lot of our trauma patients at university and we see our elective patients at the UT Health clinics and that's actually really great. We all work in, um, in some, uh, some more community-based clinics, which are really nice, have a slightly more relaxed mm -hmm. feel, which is great for the children in particular. And I can put in the text of this podcast information about how to send patients to you. Yeah. So you spent uh, some time here when you were in the Navy, mm -hmm. and that's when you fell in love with Texas? That's right. That's right. Yeah, I was, uh, I was very, as a young surgeon trainee, I was very interested in research, and in particular, we'd I'd already been to Afghanistan once by then, and I'd come back and was working in our military hospital where we were receiving our casualties. 
and there was a from an academic perspective you know we were desperate to uh, improve outcomes for our soldiers obviously and you know unfortunately one of the, the sad reality is that uh, warfare leads to medical advances and it has done for quite literally centuries centuries i mean the the, the ambulance was inve- invented um, in the Napoleonic warfare um, up, up until, you know, penicillin in World War One, And now, you know, the Afghanistan conflicts, things such as the use of tourniquets in the pre-hospital area, that, that was that was actually considered, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, something was frowned upon, but actually it was shown that they were, they were thought to be unsafe, but now actually were found to be life-saving. And so that's completely changed civilian practice based upon military practice. And there were... Half a, dozen, half a dozen other examples of things like that, and I really wanted to be part of that. As a reconstructive surgeon, I was really interested in the potential for hand and face transplantation to treat wounded soldiers. And uh, we had a link with the Institute of Surgical Research in San Antonio, so uh, I was desperate to go. And I was lucky enough that my research was considered uh, good enough to be able to uh, take that post. And I came out, it was meant to be for one year, and. Uh, I extended that <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, just love living in Texas. And um, yeah, went back, finished my training, uh, completed my career in the Navy and uh, had the opportunity to stay uh, in the UK, but uh, had a nagging nagging desire to come back to Texas and uh, live, live in the sunshine and drive a big truck. So uh, I was lucky enough to get this job and here I am. <laughs> so you do drive a big truck? Absolutely, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> And you like to bike? Yeah, Texas is perfect for mountain biking because the weather's good all year round. Maybe even too hot in the summer. So, uh, yeah, a little bit different to uh, to the rain back home. What type of biking? So, well, I'm into mountain, mountain biking and uh, I also do a motorcycle track riding, which is, uh, again, slightly different speed. And uh, it's a great way of taking your mind off the day-to-day. Uh, so there's not, you know, when you're... So, for example, the Circuit of the Americas doing 170 miles an hour down the back straight, you definitely can't be worrying about your email. Mm-hmm, right. Uh, so, uh, does that require a lot of present moment Absolutely. Thought? Yeah, yeah. And there's a pretty big mountain biking community here. Is yes, right? yes. It's, uh, it's huge, actually. It's, um, in fact, well, in fact, all over the world, uh, you know, if you, it's, it's quite interesting, these, these communities, you know, you, and, and social media has been very helpful. You know, you, if you type in uh, San Antonio mountain biking into Facebook, you'll find more than one group, and uh, you'll find a ride pretty quickly. When I loved Oxford, when I lived there, I, you were on faculty. Tell us a little bit about your time there, what you did. Absolutely, yeah, I, lo- I loved Oxford. It's a beautiful city, and um, as much as I was, was desperate to work in, in Texas, the uh, I used to cycle to work in Oxford down the high street where the main colleges are, and these are 900-year-old buildings. Um, so I, I can tell you the, the difference in uh, commute from cycling past a 900-year-old chapel uh, versus the I-10 is quite stark. But um, so yeah, it was it was a beautiful place to live and work, and uh, it, it's steeped in history. And the academic a- atmosphere there was was fantastic. You know, we really encouraged not only in our own field, but I think what what was so interesting about o- Oxford and Cambridge is the way that they encourage cross-pollination of ideas so the academics are expected to eat together most evenings in the colleges and you as a physician might be sitting next to a philosopher who might be sitting next to an engineer who might be sitting next to a mathematician and and it it, it promotes that culture of uh, inquiry 
and curiosity and the the way that um, you know an idea that you might take from a mathematician that might help in your medical research is uh, you know is is fascinating and so I think having that in inquiring culture uh, is is really uh, important. And I remember a Spanish bar that was fun where they had like dancing at night and and oddly enough the McDonald's was kind of a hangout too that was up the street <laughs> at the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know okay. Why. But it is such a wonderful environment. Yeah. I I loved it. Tell us more about your um, work here. So, uh, lymphedema surgery is a is a passion of mine. Uh, that's something that um, it's quite new, and uh, really, I, I train as a microsurgeon, uh, which, which is to transfer parts of the body from from one to the other, and that, that has you know in pediatric practice, uh, um, I do that for trauma. I also do it for some congenital. Disorders. So, for example, probably the most recent pediatric microsurgical case I did was for a, a young patient with a congenital absence of their facial nerve. So their smile was asymmetric and took a muscle from her thigh, plumbed it into her face with the ENT surgeon who does the nerve part of the surgery. And that, that muscle will function, the leg muscle, it now functions in her face to move her smile. So wow. in incredibly rewarding operation. Now, that relies on microscopically joining blood vessels together and microsurgeons in the sort of late 90s uh, were able to start considering joining lymphatic vessels either to each other or to, to veins clearly they're smaller than arteries and veins and the progression really relied upon technology in terms of improved microscopes and improved instruments and now we've reached a stage where almost routinely we can reconstruct the lymphatic system and I was lucky enough to be trained in that and uh, there was no one doing that in San Antonio when I arrived here and um, so I was keen to set that service up and um, I'm very proud to say that we've done well over 100 cases now and we're actually applying for a centre of excellence status for UT Health which we're really really excited about. Wow. What do you see in the future of plastic surgery? Plastic surgery is always been the uh, innovators of, of surgery and now innovation is part of every field but one of the amazing things about plastic surgery is that we work with all other groups we work with pediatric surgeons we work with general surgeons breast surgeons ENT surgeons orthopedic surgeons we do reconstructive across the whole area of the body and plastic surgeons have always been able to use that le diverse level of exposure to come up with new ideas new treatments and we're very proud of the number of plastic surgeons who won Nobel Prizes for example even the first kidney transplant was done by a plastic surgeon hmm. so currently I think one of the big changes for us is the influence of robotics so ro applications of robotic surgery to plastic surgery are being able to do uh, reconstruction to ever less invasive incisions and that particularly working with the general surgeons who've pioneered some of those techniques to use a robot to do our flat reconstructions mm. is, is really exciting so that's that's definitely an area because we can really limit the morbidity that's caused by some of the surgeries that we do going back to my own research in hand and face transplantation and that has had some pediatric implications you know really that the the uh, big advances there are in fact going to be in bionics 
And instead of having a transplant which relies on immunosuppression, which comes with its own risks, we could now use uh, nerve interfaces to control prosthetics. The, the quote that most inspires me, which is which which is on my website at UT, uh, is from a guy, a, a, a surgeon called Paul Kalanithi, who wrote the book called When Breath Becomes Air. Uh, sadly, he mm -hmm. passed away, and he wrote that book. And uh, although he's uh, a significantly higher achiever than I am, we are roughly, would have been roughly the same age. And his sort of journey through his surgical training kind of paralleled my own. And so I was fascinated, obviously, to read his book. And one of his comments uh, tallied with something one of my mentors told me a few years ago, which was really applies to how I view surgery, which is that each operation is better than the one before. We're desperately trying to achieve perfection. And his quote was, we can never achieve perfection, but we can believe in an asymptote to which we are ceaselessly striving. Mm. And does that help guide you? That summarises my entire approach to surgery, which is every morning I think that the operation I'm going to do that day is going to be even better than the one I did the day before, and I'm excited about it. Dr. Anton Fries, thank you so much for being here today on Pediatrics Now. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pediatrics Now. Click on the link for free credit if you're a practitioner. You can also email us with questions or episode ideas. That address is pediatricsnow at uthscsa.edu. We release a new episode every Friday. I'm Holly Wayment. I hope you can join us for our next episode.